Um, but we are picking up this morning in what uh, we have numbered as the fourth command uh, of God, and it revolves around the Sabbath. In 1875, William Ernest Henley wrote the one and only poem for which he is remembered. The title of the poem is Invictus. Maybe you have heard of that before, uh, but it reads this, uh, like this. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody, but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my faith. I am the captain of my soul. Maybe you've not heard anything but those last two lines, as they are uh, popular, I think, within our culture. But this poem is a poem in which Henley celebrates human autonomy. And in a very significant way, he expresses the fallen condition of every single human heart. The gravitational pull of our sin is always away from God. It's always away from trusting in God. It's always away from putting our affections towards God, worshiping the Lord. And so though we might proclaim with our lips that God is the Lord of my life, oftentimes when the rubber meets the road in our day-to-day lives, we live as though we are actually the masters of our fate and the captains of our soul. And perhaps that's nowhere more clear in your life or my life, no point where more pressure is placed on this than when it comes to how you and I might approach our time, how we schedule Or maybe we do, or maybe we don't. Maybe some of us are trying to to drag the bull by the horns, and some of us are just trapped at the back, just our time has run away from us. But I think that we can all understand the reality that we oftentimes live in the tyranny of the urgent. There's always another meeting to make. There's always another appointment to get to. There's always another task to be done on my to-do list. There's always another load of laundry that's waiting for me when I get home. There's always another job to do, and there's always another game or practice to fit into my schedule. There's always something next. And sometimes life can be so chaotic. I even said it just this morning that it can be easy for us to just live in this place of, I'm just making it day by day. And sometimes that's all that we can do. But when we live under the tyranny of the present, When we live under the tyranny of the urgent, when we live with our focus on the here and the now, we end up with a tunnel vision that takes our focus off of God and puts it on ourselves. When we live in this tunnel vision focused on ourselves in the here and now, we tend then to only see ourselves and we lose focus on the bigger picture where God is working and on who God is. So God in his word, reaches into the very details of our lives and exercises his divine right to the details of our lives to claim our time and to push reset on our focus and claim our worship, our affection, and our trust. Read with me, if you will, Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 8. We will read the longest of the Ten Commandments. Verse 8 through 11. 
God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your grace. And the grace, Heavenly Father, that you do not leave us to our own wanderings, but you provide divine instruction in our lives. Because you care about us, Heavenly Father, you have spoken to us through your word. You have revealed us yourself to us in your Son. You come to and dwell within us in your Spirit so that we might live in a relationship with you. Father God, I pray this morning that you would grab our affections, our attention, our trust, so that, Heavenly Father, we might bring you the glory and the honor that you deserve. Help us to understand the truth of your word this morning, and help us to live, live in light of your command, and live in a relationship with the one, the only who fulfilled it, who filled it full, your son Jesus Christ. And so, in his name and for his glory, we pray. Amen. And amen. As I said, we've been working through the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words. In Scripture, we actually never hear it referred to as the Ten Commandments. They're the Ten Words that God gave to his people on Mount Sinai as he had, after he had rescued them from Egypt. And so we saw uh, at the beginning of the year uh, that the foundation of God's rules, his regulations, is ultimately his love for us. It is rooted in his work to rescue his people from Egypt. And so it's not ten rules that they are intended to follow in order to get or even keep a relationship with God, that instead they are already in a relationship with God. And so God places his name upon these people and then gives them the ways in which they might walk in a relationship with him and experience all of the benefits of that relationship with him. And so the very first command, God claims their worship. If you'll remember, it's not just merely that we don't worship God among other gods, it's that we worship God only. That there is to be no other God in front of him, beside him, around him, period. But God deserves all of our worship. And we said that two, two ways that we can talk about our worship is through what we love, our affections, and what we trust. Whatever we love and whatever we trust is what we worship. It is a God in our lives. God then not only commanded who we worship, but he instructed us in how we should worship this God who is the invisible God, that we are to receive him as he's revealed himself to us, and not in the ways that you and I want to represent him, but instead to come to him on his terms. Last week, Brother Danny shared with us the reality that when we're not to take the Lord God's name in vain— that that is much deeper than we have a tendency to think. Maybe you, like he and like I, grew up simply thinking that that command was all about not using God's name as a cuss word. But what we saw is that there's not actually a verb for speaking in that command. The take command is not a speaking word. It is a bearing word. You shall not carry the name of the Lord your God in vain. And so it implies that it's deeper into all of our lives. 
And what we've seen when we come to the Ten Commandments is that we have a tendency in the church to oversimplify them. And when we do, we find ourselves in the same place that the Pharisees were in, where we are legalistic. Well, I've never used God's name as a cuss word, and I get real angry when people around me use God's word as a cuss word, so I'm good. I've never had sex with that woman, so I've not committed an affair, despite the fact that there are many other aspects to it. Jesus deepens our understanding of the Ten Commandments by talking about there's a letter of the law, but then there's also a broader heart that's behind it. I may not have ever taken someone's life, but on the flip side, I don't really necessarily value human life that's around me and care for it. And so we're seeking to try to deepen our understanding of the Ten Commandments so that we can understand the heart that is there And so that we can approach them as believers in Jesus Christ, realizing that Jesus is the one who fills them full. And that we might understand how we can approach them in that best way. Of the Ten Commandments, probably the most difficult one for us to uh, approach, so I'm grateful in some ways for the last three weeks to be able to dive into this. The guys at the, Pro- the Bible Project spent 14 hours talking about uh, the Sabbath and the theme of the Sabbath that runs through all of Scripture. Because we see in this probably a litmus test for how we are supposed to approach the laws of God when it comes to God's Scripture, because the Sabbath appears throughout Scripture, and it is extremely controversial once we get to the New Testament. How is it that we keep the Sabbath? I want to argue this morning that the Sabbath is ultimately God's reset button for your affections and mine, for our worship. It's God's reset button on the focus of our hearts. And for us to understand that, we have to understand what has happened with the Sabbath throughout Scripture. The first time we really see the practice of the Sabbath is just a couple chapters before what you and I are looking at in Exodus chapter 20. In Exodus chapter 16, while the Israelites are wandering through the wilderness, they're hungry. And in their hunger, hunger, they begin grumbling against the Lord. And so in Exodus chapter 16, God brings the promise of manna. He is going to feed his people in the wilderness. That manna, that bread from heaven, is only going to come six out of seven days of the week. On the seventh day, or on the sixth day, they're supposed to collect twice as much because on the seventh day, the Bible tells us that God has said, the Lord has commanded, tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. God has set apart this day in which the manna is going to stop. Because really, that's what Sabbath at its most basic level means. Sabbath at its most basic Hebrew interpretation is just simply stop. Just stop. And so the manna stopped one day a week. And it was an exercise of their faith and their trust in the Lord that they were going to take advantage of, receive the provision on the sixth day in preparation for the seventh day. God then took that practice of stopping one day a week and he codified it, he solidified it, if you will, when we come here to Exodus chapter 20. Here at the Sinai Covenant, God institutes the Sabbath as an ongoing principle and part of his law. And in a sense, we find out that the Sabbath, from this point forward, is a sign of the covenant that God made with his people. When God enters into a relationship with his people and he enters into a covenant, there's always a sign associated with it. If you go back to God's promise, his covenant relationship with Noah, 
in the book of Genesis, what's the sign of that covenant? The rainbow. It's the sign that God will live up to his promise that never again will he flood the earth. When God makes his covenant relationship with Abraham, what is the sign of the covenant for Abraham? Circumcision. And it's the ongoing sign of the covenant. The ongoing sign of the covenant that God is making with his people here at Mount Sinai is the keeping of the Sabbath. How do I know that? Because God said so. In Ezekiel chapter 20, God says, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. The Sabbath, the weekly practice of stopping one day a week while the rest of the world stays busy was an ongoing sign of the relationship that the people had with God. So much so that God takes the Sabbath very seriously. It doesn't take very long for us to get into the Bible to see how seriously God takes it when there's a man wandering around the camp on the Sabbath day and he's collecting firewood and God commands that he be stoned. In that same chapter of Ezekiel chapter 20, God seems to say that the keeping or the failure to keep the Sabbath is the primary reason that God has exiled his people. Because the Sabbath is not just about the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the covenantal sign that encompasses all of the rest of the law. It's the symbol that says, because I keep this very public expression of my worship to the Lord, my trust in him by setting one day aside from my labors to gather together with his people in worship, this is the covenantal sign, my expression, that I am walking according to all of the rest. And so as a sign of their breaking of that broader covenant, God takes them out of the land. He expels them from the land into exile. So then we can understand when we get into the New Testament why the Pharisees take the Sabbath so seriously. They understand the meaning of the prophets that God has said in some way the reason that the people were kicked out of Israel in the first place was because they refused to honor the Sabbath. Now here they are in first century Jerusalem and they are controlled by Rome. And so they are very zealous for the law and especially the adherence to the Sabbaths because they're afraid that they're going to get kicked out again. And so when Jesus comes onto the scene and he begins doing work on the Sabbath, the Pharisees are scared and they lash out against him. Mark chapter 2, verse 23 and 24, one Sabbath he was going through the grain fields and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain and the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? The Pharisees were so scared that they were going to break this command and be exiled and lose the promised land again. They had all kinds of crazy restrictions. They are very serious about adhering to the letter of this law. So much so that you, if you had to spit on the Sabbath, you had to find a rock. Because if you spit on the dirt, you made mud, and that was work. One so much, we find another example in, I think it's Luke, where the woman comes to, to, uh, to Jesus and she's bent over, she's hunched over, and, she, and Jesus is going to heal her. And you actually have a Pharisee say to her, you've got six other days of the week to get healed, come back tomorrow. 
One of the laws was that if there was a landslide, if someone was trapped under a mudslide, which happens in Israel very easily and very frequently, you were only allowed to do just enough work to find out if the person underneath the rubble was alive. And if they were going to survive to the next day, you had to come back the next day to get them out. That's legalism. It's all about what do I have to do in my power and my strength to adhere to this law. And what Jesus says is you've missed the heart of it altogether. And so Jesus responds to their claims that he has violated the Sabbath by telling them the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then he makes this shocking claim. The Son of Man, Jesus, is Lord of the Sabbath. In some sense, claiming to be the one who gets to dictate what is or isn't acceptable on the Sabbath anymore. That he is the ultimate authority, not the Pharisees in their interpretation of the law, but Jesus is the one who has come to fill the Sabbath full. If you remember in our study to Galatians, we saw that Paul exposed the purpose of the law was threefold. Right? The purpose of the law is to, one, show us we're sinners. Two, to show us there's nothing we can do about it because all of our best efforts and labors will never get us out of our sinfulness. And three, to lead us to the only one who can rescue us from that. From that ongoing slavery to my own attempts to make God happy or keep God happy. And so Jesus now steps in here, claiming to be the Lord of the Sabbath. And that claim to be Lord of the Sabbath changes everything. Because Jesus claims in that moment, right then and right there, that he is the one who fulfills the meaning of the Sabbath. He's the one who has filled it full. The Sabbath was always pointing to something. And what we find is that what it was pointing to was Jesus. Because he not only claims to be Lord over the Sabbath, he claims to be the one and only one who can provide what the Sabbath was meant to provide in the first place. He says that in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You won't find rest in a day. You won't find rest in a practice. You only find the rest that actually matters in a person. And so what we find is that keeping the Sabbath post-Jesus Christ is not about a practice. It's not really about when we rest. It's about in whom we rest. Are we finding rest in our own attempts? Or are we finding rest in Jesus? Keeping the Sabbath is not about when we rest but in whom we rest. Paul seems to confirm this. Because when Paul begins ministering, Jesus is in a Jewish context, right? When Paul begins ministering, Paul begins ministering in a, a meshed, a melded, a melting pot, if you will, of cultures. He's ministering in both, as we read the book of Acts, he goes to the synagogue and begins proclaiming the gospel to the Jews, and when that's rejected and he's kicked out of the synagogue, he goes to the Gentiles. And so Paul lives with this foot in both worlds. 
And one of the prime examples of of Paul trying to bring these two different cultures together under the person of Jesus Christ is his letter to the Romans, where there in the book of Romans, he begins to address this congregation that is mixed of a Jewish group and a Gentile group who are trying to somehow get along. And so Paul writes in Romans chapter 14, one person esteems one day as better than another, the Sabbath day, the feast days, the holy days, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to him. Probably more clearly in Colossians chapter 2, this is what Paul Paul says. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. Here is Paul, a Jew of Jews, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee among Pharisees, and he is in this realm where he says, essentially, it doesn't really matter. Because something greater has come. And what the Sabbath is meant to point us to is Jesus Christ. And so when we look at the early church, we don't really find this practice necessarily of keeping the Sabbath because they all understand that every day is a Sabbath in Jesus. Every day is a resting in Christ. Every day is a receiving of God's blessing and a ceasing from my labors. And so we never actually see, just to clarify this, even though some of our our catechisms and some of our historic documents have said that the Lord's Day is the replacement of the Sabbath, that's not actually historical. We don't see that in history. We see that there was a regular practice of the Sabbath among Jewish Christians, but there was an always practice that they all came back together on the first day of the week. The Lord's Day, the day that he was raised from the dead in order that they might remember his resurrection, in a sense, every Sunday is an Easter Sunday. We come back together every Sunday on the day of the week that Jesus was raised from the dead, that we might remember that and that they might have this love feast. And so as you look in Paul's letters, Paul's less concerned about the Sabbath and he's more concerned about getting everybody that he possibly can to get together for this love feast in Jesus Christ. Because that supersedes anything that came before. And so the Sabbath, he says, if you are burdened and you want to create and you want to keep a Sabbath, do it unto the Lord. If you see that every day is a day of rest in Jesus Christ and you don't see them as weak or not, then do that unto the Lord. He says, just get along. You don't get to judge one another based on your calendars. As long as you are both in it for honoring and loving the Lord. So, what do we do with the Sabbath? Has Paul just thrown it all out, the baby with the bathwater? Has Jesus just completely done away? Are we just supposed to just skip over the fourth command and the Ten Commandments and say, well, that doesn't apply to us anymore? No. The question is not just what do we do with the Sabbath, but how do we come to the Sabbath through Jesus Christ? And how do we honor the Sabbath and keep the Sabbath holy, sanctified, set apart in our lives Well, it's not by keeping the letter of the law. It's by understanding, first and foremost, the heart of the law. So I said at the beginning that I believe that what we find when we look through Scripture is ultimately the Sabbath is God's reset button on the focus of our hearts 
So let's see how that fleshes out. What were the purposes of the Sabbath, and how do they apply to our lives? Well, first and foremost, Sabbath is a chance for us to rest. That's the whole purpose of the command. Sabbath means what? Stop. Sabbath means stop. In the rat race of our life, when there's this constant tyranny of the urgent, of the next thing and the next thing and the next thing that immediately takes our focus off of the world around us, but right on the moment in front of us, we end up with this tunnel vision where we can no longer see what ultimately matters. And when we are left in this life where we are constantly after the very next thing and checking off the very next to-do list, we become overwhelmed with the weight of our labor. And so God in the Old Testament and throughout Scripture is constantly calling us to have a practice in our lives where we stop living and working for ourselves. He says, set it aside. Take a day to trust in me. Stop burning yourself out, to stop overwhelming your family, to stop living under the weight of this tyranny of the urgent. But ultimately, we find when we come to it in Jesus Christ, it's a time where we're supposed to stop trying to earn God's love. Stop! You can't do it anyway. Find your rest from all of your spiritual labors in Jesus alone. He is the one who's accomplished it all. You will never be good enough to make God happy. You will never be bad enough for God to write you off. And for all who are in Jesus, we have the privilege of ceasing from our labors our efforts to make God happy, and we actually just get to live in the freedom to serve God and serve others without a fear of failure. We need to stop. But it's easy for us oftentimes to, to stop and claim to be living a practice of Sabbath rest. Right? Where there's a day in my week or there's a, a day in my, my life and I set it aside for a Sabbath under the Lord. I stop everything, but the reality is we break it. Because the Sabbath was never meant to be a lazy day where I just get to live for me. We're working for me six days a week. We're living for me one day a week. God says you'll work six days, the seventh day you'll stop. Why? Because Sabbath isn't merely a chance for us to rest from our labor. Sabbath is a chance for us to refocus on the Lord. It's a chance for us to get our eyes and our, our hearts and our, our minds off of our lives and take a day when we stop to think that there is something bigger out there than just me. To refocus our attention on the Lord and first and foremost to look to his example. God commands this people in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, to cease from your labors. And then in verse 11, he gives the reason for it. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. God wants us to see that, that he has structured the time. God established this pattern. It's a pattern that means something. 
It's a pattern that's rooted all the way back in Genesis chapter 2 when God created the world. And in six days, he created the world. And here's the interesting thing, brothers and sisters. Six days of the seven that God records God's creation in Genesis chapter 1 has the same phrase. There was morning and there was evening on the first day. There was morning and there was evening on the second day. Morning and evening on the third, on the fourth, on the fifth, on the sixth, but not on the seventh. Go back and look at it. There's no conclusion to the seventh day in Genesis chapter 2. Because it was meant to be an ongoing perpetual rest in which God related with Adam and Eve and in which Adam and Eve worked. They were meant to work in the garden. And what we find is that really and truly, even Jesus points out to the fact that says, hey, don't your priests on the Sabbath day work? They don't stop. They're sacrificing animals. They're working on the Sabbath. Why? Because a work unto the Lord is not slavery. A work unto the Lord is not burdensome. A work unto the Lord is a blessing. There's a kind of work that you and I have in our life that just drains us. But then there's a kind of work in our life that when we're done with it, we are jazzed. And we are ready to go and keep on going. And we're just filled with so much adrenaline. That is what work unto the Lord is meant to do. That is meant was what the experience of Adam and Eve in the garden were when they were able to work and the ground just gladly gave. But then they rebelled against God. And the ground that was once in cooperation with them became a ground that was in rebellion against them and their work became slavery. And they lost the Sabbath rest. And so God worked again to rescue them out of Egypt. And just like in the six-day creation, he takes the creation out of chaos and he begins to bring order to it until the culmination of the seventh day rest. God rescues his people from, from Egypt, out of slavery, out of chaos, and there in the wilderness, he begins a process of providing order to their chaos, order to their worship, order to their lives, so that when they enter into the promised land, they can get rest. And then they broke the command. They rejected God. And so they were expelled out of the garden. Out of Israel. So God brought them back, and then Jesus came. And Jesus worked, and he began in his ministry doing what? Bringing order out of chaos. As he began to heal the sick, and as he began to cast out the demons, and as he began to raise the dead, and as he began to undo all of the brokenness that sin had put into the world until such time that he went to the cross where he paid the ultimate price to fix what is broken, which is our sin, that we might have rest from our labors. And then he rose the first day of the week. Sunday's not the end of the week, brothers and sisters. It never has been. The Sabbath is the end of the day of the week. It's the last day of the week. Jesus got back up on the first day of the week. Why? Because he's at work. Bringing order out of chaos. Through the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in your life and my life, in which God is doing what? According to 1 
Peter, he is building for himself a people, a temple. He is placing it in order. He is working in his life in such a way that he is building his kingdom for the ultimate reception of the final, biggest, capital S, Sabbath rest in eternity. Do you see how God's got a bigger plan? When we take the time to stop out of my rat race of the day, I realize God has a bigger purpose. I can focus my attention on the plan of God, see where I am. I can stop being so consumed about me and my piddly little problems, and I realize that God has something bigger at work. It's not all about me. I can refocus on the Lord. I can look to his people. The Sabbath was always a time for the people to gather together in the presence of one another for the worship of the Lord. Yes, we hear multiple commands about don't come out of your house and everything else. But as we see it worked out in Leviticus 23, we find that verse 3, six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. That's a word for assembly. The Israelites came together on the Sabbath to assemble with one another for the worship of the Lord. Ezekiel chapter 46 is where Ezekiel tells us that the Sabbath day was the one day a week when the people were supposed to come to the temple and the doors were opened so that they could see inside the temple. And the priests were to minister and it was supposed to be open all day long that they might worship the Lord. Sabbath is meant to refocus our hearts on God to worship him. But also, here's what's really interesting. The Sabbath is also our chance to remember. If you take notes in your Bible, I would urge you to make sure that you write in the margin of your Bible in Exodus chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5. Because Deuteronomy chapter 5 is where we find the Ten Commandments a second time in Scripture. And what's interesting when we come to this particular command of the Sabbath when we come to Deuteronomy 5, is it is almost identical. And the way that it's different teaches us something about the tenth, or this command. You shall observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. This is Deuteronomy 5, verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. And this is where it completely changes. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, that the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. It's the exact same command, but an entirely different reason. Exodus chapter 20, we are to stop one day a week. Why? Because that's the pattern that God established for our lives. It's a surrendering to his pattern as the Lord of my life and the Lord of my time. It's to refocus my attention on him, but it's also to refocus my attention on others. It's a time to remember what God has done as he commands them, remember that you were slaves and I rescued you. And in remembering that every single Sabbath, that should change the way 
you relate to the people who are socially lesser than you. And you are to extend mercy to those who would be your servants. Because you remember what it was like to be under the thumb of a wicked ruler and you never got to rest. You worked six days a week, 24 hours, or seven days a week, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. You never got to rest. But I rescued you so that you can have rest. You will therefore show mercy to those that are around you. And we see Jesus doing the same thing. When Jesus is, quote-unquote, breaking the Sabbath according to the Pharisees, what is he doing? He's extending mercy. He says the thing that we should be doing on the Sabbath is serving other people and giving them mercy, bringing healing, bringing hope, bringing life. Because that is a labor unto the Lord that is not draining, it is completely filling. But not only are we to look back at what God has done, and not only are we to look around at the people who need our mercy in our lives, the book of Hebrews actually invites us on the Sabbath to look forward because the promise in Scripture is that the real Sabbath hasn't shown up yet. Hebrews chapter 9, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. There's a Sabbath still to come. It's not only looking back, it's not only looking around, it's looking forward to the fact that God has fulfilled his promise to rescue me from my sin, to rescue me from my labors, to provide me rest in him today. But there is a promise that there is a rest that is still to come. And I live in this tension in which I am to be busy about the work of God in the power of God for the Christ of God by going into the world as his ambassadors for Christ, not wasting this new life that I have been given as a new creation, but instead going as his emissary, his ambassador in the world to invite other people into the same rest that I now experience as I anticipate with joy the rest that is coming. Every practice of Sabbath for the people of Israel was an anticipation of the rest that was to come. God commanded them to rest in the wilderness. Why? Because they were looking forward to the promised land. God commands us to prioritize a practice in our lives where we stop. We rest from all of my spiritual labor I focus, refocus myself on the bigger picture that God has that I might give him my trust and my affection, my worship, and so that I can remember all that he's done and all that he's promised that is yet to come true. And in that, God pushes reset on the focus of our hearts and our worship. That's the purpose of the Sabbath. It's not about days and hours and when I do it. It's about creating margin in my life so that I can come back to Jesus again and again and again and again. When we turned the corner on this year, I didn't expect to take three Sundays off. And when my family got COVID and I lost a Sunday, then it snowed and we weren't there, and then Joel had put in so much effort and we had talked through the sermon and, and I said, I, I don't 
I get plenty of opportunities, brother. I want this to be an opportunity for you to develop and to grow in, in your presentation. Let's, let's, let's just go. And before the year came, I had already worked it out with Brother Danny that he would preach last week. All of a sudden, I looked up and every preaching event and opportunity that I had for three weeks was gone. And I said, God, I don't know what you're doing. I don't like it. Because usually when you put this much margin, you're getting me ready for something big. And he's been working in that time because the reality is it's easy for people, I think, sometimes to think that the pastor just lives in that rest. He lives related to God. He lives relating to, to the Lord. And he just lives in this perpetual Sabbath rest. But the reality is I, I can get lost in the next thing in the next sermon, in the next Bible study, in the next meeting, in the next this. And I can get this tunnel vision where all I'm doing is perpetuating the program. And I knew I needed, I've learned I needed the last three weeks to step back, say, God, I don't know what you're doing, but let me look. Let me see where you are. And, and I've had plenty of opportunities opportunities to sit in on two Sunday school classes over the last two weeks. It was such a blessing to be able to just fellowship with so many of you. I had an opportunity to, to take some time to, to pursue a few that I haven't had an opportunity to really get the margin in my schedule to go after that I might pastor them individually instead of corporately. There's so much more that, that I want to do and I, I realize and the personnel team and I are, are working that I have to establish a rhythm of rest so that I have the ability, even as your pastor, to step back every once in a while, to detach from the busyness of my life that just perpetuates this self-dependence. And I need to disconnect and I need to grant opportunities to develop other people and you need some diversity not just hearing from me over and over and over again and getting only my perspective and we will all grow in that together. Sometimes God knows us well enough to know that we won't take the rest unless he makes us. Please don't put God in the position that he has to make you Stop and refocus on him, on others around you, and on the truth of the gospel. Create margin in your schedule. You don't have to be legalistic about it. Create space to stop. Where is God calling you to stop? To worship him to serve others and to remember not only did God set a pattern, but God's got a plan. And there's something on the other side of whatever storm I'm in and I can trust in Him.